Welcome to everyone who's here today uh, and everyone watching again online. This is the last regular Sunday in Lent, as I've said, and um, the last of this sermon series I've been doing on the passion story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, and uh, we've been kind of going through that. As I promised, we won't finish that story until Good Friday. And uh, so again, my pitch is don't forget to come and tune in to Good Friday. There is no Easter without Good Friday. Um, so we are now at that part of the story where uh, it all kind of happened, right? Where all the things came together, all the, all the parts came together, all the players did their thing, and Jesus is now being dragged out and he's being crucified. And this was the way that Romans got rid of criminals, uh, whether they were political dissidents, common criminals. They had lots of ways, but this was kind of their uh, favorite way if they wanted to make a statement. It was intended to be a long, slow, humiliating, degrading punishment. It was meant to be the kind of punishment to, to send a message that we are not going to let you go down with dignity, sort of the you know, the, so you couldn't be a martyr and say, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I will go down in flames. And then you would get shot and people would say, boy, what a hero. Crucifixion was intended to strip you of all that possibility. Strip you naked, make it long and slow and degrading and public to send a message that we are not going to give you that. And that was part of what the Romans, the way the Romans did it. Uh, that's how they kept their empire together. And Jesus who gets caught up in this even though he didn't commit crimes in the sense you normally would do to end up that way. Uh, and the big question then that has vexed Christianity ever since this happened was why exactly did it have to happen and why in this way? Uh, what was the reason for such a cruel death? What was the reason for crucifixion? Why did God have to die that way? Now, I, I don't know about you, this question... Uh, has actually kept me up at night, probably more than any single theological question that I've debated in my life. Um, you know, which is, what is the reason for Jesus' death on the cross? Uh, I mean, why did he not, why could he not die some other way that was less cruel? I mean, and why so young? Why at 33, not, why at 53 or 83? Uh, why not just get some more years of ministry in, some more teaching in? What purpose did it serve to die? I mean, was it just to die so you could be raised? I mean, if that, and if that's the only goal, then why die in such a horrible way? Why not, you know, die in a, in a much nicer way? I can think of a lot of ways that are a lot uh, less painful than this. And if, if the point is just to die, to be raised, then why bother with all this teaching? Why bother going into Jerusalem and challenging the priests and challenging the money changers? Why do the whole going on a donkey like your King David or Solomon and make a big statement? Why bother with all that? And, and then, of course, there's the whole, well, what about the whole dying for forgiveness of sins bit, right? I mean, Jesus himself never says in so many words, I'm going to die to forgive sins. Uh, he never says, I'm going to die so that the Father doesn't kill everyone and send everyone to hell. That's usually how the story's told. But Jesus doesn't describe his own death in those words. Now, I know as a pastor that I'm supposed to have the answers to these questions. That's my job, right? I'm supposed to have the answers, and I'm supposed to give you those, confidently give you those answers, uh, that I am the fountain of truth. 
Uh, and as much as I'm a, a nerd who likes to know as many things as I can, I, there's, there's a lot I don't know, uh, which is most things, right? And here's the thing about the Bible. The more you dig into it, the deeper you go, the more you realize you don't have all the answers and you don't have all the truth. And yes, there are people who kind of give the pretense of that. We all do somewhat. Some do it a lot more than others. And I think there's some people who will kind of pick an answer that they like and go back through the Bible and find all the verses that support that and then find a way to explain away the ones that don't. And I would say, if you're doing that, you're not letting the Bible speak to you. You're not letting the Scripture talk to you. You're talking to the Scripture. You're filtering through the Scripture. And one place that the four Gospels do, uh, interestingly, where, where they do leave out a lot of explanation, but they give a lot of detail, is Jesus' death. So they describe it with more description than any other part of Jesus' life. But they don't bother to stop and say, oh, by the way, this is why it's happening. They paint this picture down to the scene, and they paint it in, in such detail. I mean, you get, you know, you have the garden you have the kiss, the arrest, you've got the beatings, down to how many beatings, what tool they used for the beatings. You have the debate, what room the debate took place at, what time of day it happened at. You know, they, they, explain, they talk about the mob and the details of the soldiers and what color Jesus' clothing was. That's a lot more detail than they get into in any other of these stories. And as much as they give all that detail, they don't stop and say, Oh, this was why. They just set the scene and they leave you there. And you're just stuck looking at this horrible, unjust tragedy and wondering why. I know that in popular culture, there's a phrase you hear a lot. They say, everything happens for a reason. And I've seen people who will swear that there is no God that, you know, the universe is, you know, just a closed system of molecules and particles and on and on. And yet those same people who say that, 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 God, that prayer couldn't possibly work and that God isn't doing, God won't ever actually step in and help you, will then turn around and say, oh, I believe everything happens for a reason. I say, well, what makes that, who, who's, who's behind that? And usually when I hear that phrase, everything happens for a reason, most of the time, it's more benign things. It's not, it's not huge things. It's like, you know, I lost my job at the big corporation working 80 hours a week, and, and I thought it was horrible at the time, but it opened up for me the chance to buy my vineyard and explore myself or something. Everything happens for a reason, right? Or, yes, I know my ex cheated on me, but she really wasn't good for me. And because she cheated on me, it helped me to break up and find the true love of my life. Everything happens for a reason. And those ones are kind of benign. And, but I sit there and I go, okay, well, what if it's something a lot less benign? What if it's something a little harsher? A person goes into a bar. They drink too much. They get into a car, they, get, they go driving down the freeway, they, they drive onto the off-ramp and go the wrong direction, smash into a family, the family dies, the drunk gets out and stumbles and, with nothing but a scratch from the airbag. 
Why did it happen? Well, we know why it happened. We know the events that led up to it. We know the causes. We, you know, somebody acted stupidly. They acted with disregard for the law, disregard for human life. They violated these traffic things. We know why they died. In a sense, we do know the reason. But maybe what we're really asking is, what is the purpose of it? Maybe the saying should be, everything happens for a purpose. You know, what is the purpose of a drunk driver smashing into a family? What good could possibly come from that that, that that would make it in some way worth it? What silver lining would exist that could justify that much suffering? And I'll be honest with you, when I sit down and I ask that question, I come up empty. Yes, a drunk might get a change of heart, get sober, go out and run a campaign to teach others not to do it. Those would be good things, but that's all things you could have done without killing people. You could have just chosen to do that. That's not really a good reason. I mean, do you really think that God is sitting up there going, you know, I think Mr. X over here has to deal with his drinking problem, and I think he'll make a great inspirational speaker. So I'll just tilt his steering wheel a little bit to get him on the wrong ramp, and uh, that, that'll be a good wake-up call for him. I know some people will die, but it'll be a good wake-up call for him. We really believe God does that? I mean, if, if, if that's what we believe, I, I might find another religion. Because in reality, what happens when a drunk driver smashes into a family is a tragedy. It's unfair. It's unjust. It's horrible. It's just a tragedy. And it's a tragedy because it doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't have this, this great reason. There, there is no great silver lining to it. And, and, and any silver lining there may be is, is nowhere near the pain and the cost. That's what a tragedy is. Now, one thing tragedies do do is they do expose the world for the way it really is. They show us the broken things. They show us how messed up things can be. They show us that the world is not naturally this happy, harmonious place where everything is good, but they, they show us a world where you know, peop, good people do bad things and bad people sometimes do good things and, and bad people get away with it sometimes and good people get punished for it sometimes, and, but sometimes they don't. And tragedies are kind of like big spotlights that they shine on the darker side of life. They're a big beacon and they show that our world, sometimes innocent people suffer. Because, you know, when we think about it, when a guilty person suffers, we tend to think that the system's working just fine. The world's, the world's in good order, right? If, if that priest out in Boston who abused those, what, 84 kids, and he goes to jail and, you know, one, his cellmate beats him, up, beats him to death, we kind of go, eh, a little vigilante justice. It's, what will we say? Suddenly now we're, we're all believers in karma, right? The universe did it. He deserved it. It's justice, we feel like, right? Nobody really blinks an eye. A guy in Tucson has some traffic violations unpaid. Has to spend the night in the jail. They put him in the county jail. His, they put him in a cell with a guy who's a murderer who has psychotic breaks and delusions. What does his roommate do? His roommate goes and fills his uh, pillow with 
rocks and things and smashes his skull in. True story happened in Tucson. Traffic violation. Now suddenly you go, boy, that prison vigilante justice doesn't seem so just, does it? Doesn't feel so, doesn't feel like the universe is working like it should. Tragedy shows us how unfair things are. That's what tragedies do. And we take away from the legitimate pain of those who suffer when we try to give everything a reason. The reason, really what it does, is it takes away our discomfort at wading into the mess and the pain. The reason makes it all tidy. The reason wraps it up with a bow and makes it rational and heroic. The reason allows you to see the world as fundamentally good and not have to reckon with what it might mean or what I might be expected of if it isn't. For 2,000 years, Christians have been struggling, in a sense, to make sense of the whole crucifixion. Uh, we've struggled with it because we want to find a way to explain how something so utterly senseless could happen. How could the one person who wasn't bad suffer so much? How could the one person who had nothing bad in him suffer so much? It, it, and, and we've struggled with you know, wanting to enter into all those ugly details of it. The cynical power plays, the, the, the politics, the money, the, the shady deals. We've not wanted, in a sense, to go down that rabbit hole of the tragedy and, and just sit there and let it sink in and let it convict me of making me rethink my views. When I was uh, younger, I used to sit up nights, literally stewing over this. Um, I know I was not a typical college student in that way. I promise you, it wasn't every night. But I used to sit and I used to worry about this because I, I, I couldn't explain to myself in a way that made sense to me how Jesus' death led to forgiveness of sins. And I was convinced that uh, when I was doing all these go-into-seminary interviews that they were going to sit and grill me on that question. Fundamental question, Lars, how does Jesus' death lead to forgiveness of sins? And I kept, getting, I kept getting hung up on it. Because I would go through the Bible and I'd be like, well, doesn't the Old Testament say that, you know, if you're faithful and you follow God's will, you will be saved? Didn't God tell Noah after the flood, I will never destroy everyone again? That's an old promise, Right? I mean, and can't, can't God just forgive people who ask for it? I mean, I believe in God. I'm sorry. Sorry, God. Can you forgive me? Why can't God just say, sure, Bill, you're forgiven? I mean, can't the God who makes quasars and black holes and dark matter be able to just forgive because he wants to? I mean, Jesus did it all the time in his own life, Right? Guys, uh, the guy's paralyzed on the mat. Your sins are forgiven. Guy comes to him. Your sins are forgiven. Guys on the cross. Your sins are forgiven. He's doling out forgiveness of sins left and right long before he died. He holds up the cup. Drink this. Do this for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say do this for the forgiveness of sins, but it won't kick in until a, a, a couple days. They drank that night. They got forgiveness of sins that night. And Jesus hadn't died yet. So I'm going. Okay. Well, if he hadn't died yet. 
Why does he have to die for me to get forgiveness of sins? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus' death isn't quite that simple. That it's not just a simple case of an angry God who's mad at sin and wants to punish people and he's sending everyone to hell for it and Jesus just jumps in and goes, no, Dad, don't kill him, kill me instead. If that was the case, don't you think Jesus would have said something about it? I mean, if, that, if it's of that cosmic significance, why did Jesus not ever use that language? Why did he never explain itself that way? Why did he say things like, it's necessary that the Son of Man die and be raised, but he didn't include all that other stuff? Why not? Instead, what the gospel writers do, all four of them, is they give you this story of Jesus' death in great detail, and every part of it seems somehow unjust and, and unfair, and the people are calloused, and Jesus gets caught up in this whole machinery, and it's all a giant tragedy. And we know the reason, you know, we know this person wanted him gone, and that person wanted him gone, and that person was mad at him, but what was the purpose? What was the goal? What was this great silver lining? And I know I'm supposed to tell you that I've sat down and I've thought about it and I read the right books and I have it figured out. And I got a simple formula and I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tie it up with a bow. But I don't. And I still struggle with the whole died for sins line. At least as it's been explained through the centuries. I, I took a whole class at this, again, to continue my nerdishness. When I lived in D.C., I took a whole class on this, on the atonement. And um, I was reading through, they got into the Middle Ages. A lot of what we understand as Christian doctrine wasn't Christian doctrine for the first thousand years. And so they started asking this question. Well, well why couldn't God just forgive people's sins? You know, if God's all-powerful, why can't he just choose to forgive sins? And the answer that they came up with in the Middle Ages was, his honor would not allow it. I'm like, honor? Honor? Where'd that come from? But, but it was that sort of idea, you know, like God's like some sort of, you know, warlord or mob boss in the sky or something, you know, and you people desperately with sin. I can't just let it go. I can't just let everyone go free. They'll think I'm weak. Baal will have a field day with me. What do you think, you know, Ganesh? He'll, he'll, I'll lose all my people to him. They'll think I'm weak. Somebody has to pay for sin. I'm going to kill them all. I mean, really? That's what we believe? I mean, but that was the medieval way. That's how they answered it. That God was bound by honor codes. And... Uh, and so, you know, I, I just sat there and I said, well, wait, didn't we just read in Philippians about how God emptied himself to take human form? We read about Jesus saying that the path to leadership is through humility. The more you dig into it, the more you realize that for the first Christians, the, one who, the ones who stood there around Jesus, the ones who knew him, the ones who huddled around in the caves, avoiding to be persecuted, that for them there was no single simple reason for his suffering and death. It was a tragedy. 
And it was just that. And they let the story sit there and make you uncomfortable. And as you watch the people in charge in the story, as you, you read the story, you watch the people in charge of God's law insist on killing the Son of God because he claimed to be the Son of God, which was technically against the law, but he actually was the Son of God. Don't you love how those traps are? And, uh, you know, and then you watch Pilate, the governor in charge of law and order, basically say, well, I don't care if he violated a law, I'm killing him anyways. And the mob, who Jesus is there to save, saying, get rid of him because we're mad he didn't meet our expectations. And then you realize what an innocent person gets caught up in this tragedy. Sometimes the only thing to gain from a tragedy is to see the injustice that it exposes to shine that spotlight on the dark side of our world. For everyone who's been through a tragedy, which is probably most of us, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it just doesn't seem fair. And you get irritated when people try to just tell you that, oh yeah, there's, there, there's some higher purpose, it's there. There's a reason, don't worry when they try to rob you of your pain and that feeling of unfairness by giving it a simple purpose. You know, I, I'm not here this morning to try to bring everybody down. I, I just want to be realistic. And I've always wanted to believe that we should have a faith that's honest, that doesn't gloss over hardship, that doesn't try to whitewash it, that doesn't try to shut down those hard questions and those those deep doubts and those inconsistencies that gnaw at you when you're sitting there at night. And I know that's not an, an easy route. And I know that's a lot less popular than providing simple answers and inspiring quotes to put on a magic eight ball that you can buy at the CVS. And if you don't believe me, go to your CVS. There's a magic eight ball you can buy with a famous pastor's inspirational slogans. Let's see, what should I do? I'm like, gosh, I'm like I'm back in college again, again. But it's the faith, it's, it's the faith that delves into these things that I find so much more meaningful and powerful the more I go into it, the more I allow myself to sit in it and live in it and be in the mystery. And I hope in all of this that you'll join me on that journey, that journey for the rest of our life, that journey of faith that keeps going to live into the tragedy and live into the hope. Amen.